You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. One of the most interesting and unexpected midterm elections in recent memory happened this week. I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to process it all. That's why we've got the great Dan Baltz here. Dan Baltz, chief correspondent at the Washington Post. Welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. You you haven't got it all figured out yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's why you're here. So, Dan, <laughs> the Good people luck. have spoken, and the news was much better for, for Democrats than expected. The simple question is, why? Well, I think, you know, as we've as we've looked through the results and looked through the exit polls and everything else, I, I think what we kind of thought about in August and early September was, in fact, the dynamic of this election. And we lost sight of that in the final, I would say, final few weeks. Um, but there were there were two big factors in this election. One was the economy and particularly inflation um, and related to that concerns about disorder. I, I won't just simply say crime, a sense of disorder in the country. Um, and, and that was clearly at the at the backs of, of Republicans, pushing them toward the normal kind of midterm in which they would pick up a substantial number of seats. But pushing against that were two other factors. One, the, the biggest, obviously, was the Supreme Court decision on abortion, which happened in June, um, and which, which really energized um, many, many women and, and, and many men at the same time, and particularly young people. Um, and I think in the final weeks of the campaign, people kind of forgot about how significant that was, and in a sense, how visceral those feelings were about what the Supreme Court had done. Uh, and the other factor, obviously, was uh, President Trump, uh, the question of democracy and the degree to which the Republican Party under Donald Trump had become a much more extreme party. And I think that 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 energized people on the left and, and to some extent in the center. I mean, one of the fascinating uh, results of this election is that independent voters who in midterm elections tend to swing back and forth with the party out of power uh, and, and give them uh, su su substantial support. In this case, they basically split between Democrats and Republicans. There wasn't a significant difference. Uh, that's a remarkable element of what, what happened here. So in the end, you had you know, as I wrote the other day, you had this sort of Republican exuberance go going into the election, uh, and it collided with the Democratic resistance, uh, and it produced this quite surprising result. Something else you wrote this week, Dan, um, was about candidate quality. I'm going to quote your words back to you. Candidate quality also appeared to be a problem for Republicans. So in what key races did that manifest itself, and why did the Republican Party have a problem recruiting better candidates in a midterm that should have been should have been huge for them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They should have done a better job of recruiting, but the problem is they're under the thumb of Donald Trump, and Donald Trump uh, endorsed some candidates who proved not ready for for prime time. I think if you had had some other candidate in Georgia running against Senator uh, Raphael Warnock, someone other than Herschel Walker. Uh, the Republicans very well could have that seat at this point. Brian Kemp uh, got over 50% in his reelection campaign against Stacey Abrams there in the gubernatorial race. Um, and uh, it's it's quite possible that the a, a different Republican uh, could have ridden in under under. 
Kemp's coattails, but but Herschel Walker has been a problematic candidate. Now, you know, I hold open the possibility that he could win the runoff still, but nonetheless, a better candidate probably would have would have, could have or would have won that race. Mm-hmm. And the other one is in Pennsylvania, where where Dr. Oz, uh, again, a Trump endorsed candidate, um, was was not really up to the task, and John Fetterman is now the uh, the the senator-elect from that state, uh, those are two seats that if the Republicans had, they'd basically be in command of the Senate. There's a third one out in Arizona, Blake Masters. That's a very tight race against incumbent Senator uh, Democrat uh, Mark Kelly. Uh, We don't quite know how that's going to turn out. But again, um, that was, he, he was a candidate who probably, you know, is weaker than some others that they might have found. So so those are three races that could could have put the Senate into Republican hands. But because of Trump's uh, role in the party and his influence in the party, uh, the Republicans are staring at the possibility that they may not win control of the Senate in this midterm. Mm-hmm. Let's keep talking about Georgia, because uh, let's say we find out the results from Nevada and, and, and Arizona they both go they both go to the democrats that would make that would put the democrats in the majority with the help of the vice president for that tie breaking vote but you would still have that runoff in georgia on december 6th so who go, who has the edge right now no matter what happens going into that runoff and what impact will donald trump have in that runoff if he decides to inject himself well Based on what we saw two years ago when he injected himself into those two runoffs, uh, that would be a problem for the Republicans. Um, I, I think it's you know it's it's fair to say that his involvement two years ago uh, probably cost uh, the Republicans one or both of those Senate seats. Uh, and so I would think that Republican leaders are desperate to have him stay out of it, uh, not insert himself into the center of our politics at this moment, and let that race play out. Um, but I think so much now, Jonathan, depends on what happens in Arizona and Nevada. Uh, if, in fact, the Democrats hold that Nevada seat, which, again, we don't know what is going to happen there, but certainly uh, Senator Cortez Masto has an opportunity to hold that seat against uh, you know predictions that she was the most vulnerable Democratic incumbent in the country. Um, and then if they hold Arizona, then then Georgia, it's not that it doesn't matter. Uh, the difference between 50 and 51 is not insignificant, um, right. but it doesn't matter quite as much. And I think that that might, that might depress turnout. Um, it might depress turnout more on the Republican side because they would know that even if they win that seat, they're going to be in the minority. But we're, you know, we're speculating about something a month a month off, and and in which the dynamic hasn't yet been quite formed. Right, and if anything, um, we should we should all we all should have learned the lesson of the midterm term elections, and that is we should have some humility when it comes to predicting what what happens. Let's talk about Florida and the time that we have left. Fascinating that Governor Ron DeSantis won re-election by a huge margin. It was like 20 points. So that sets him up clearly for 2024. Um, Talk about the dynamics that we're seeing now between Governor DeSantis and the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. 
Well, the former president is not very happy about the attention that Governor DeSantis is is, is rightly getting for that, that very substantial victory uh, that he got on Tuesday night. I mean, that was a very impressive win on his part. Um, and he has been looked at by a lot of people who would prefer not to see Donald Trump as the nominee of, of their party uh, as a clear alternative. And this boosted him significantly in that. Um, Donald Trump knows that. Donald Trump can recognize somebody who's on a roll uh, and he's doing everything he can to, you know, kind of, you know, rain on uh, Governor DeSantis's uh, parade right now. Um, he's been tweeting out and, you know, saying nasty things about him. I think all of that is predictable. I think the big question right. is what Governor DeSantis decides to do. Um, you know, this is his moment to run for president. Um, you know, when Barack Obama was thinking about running for president back in 2008, David Axelrod, his, you know, his chief strategist, sent him a memo that basically said, uh, you will never be hotter than you are now. It, it, what he meant was he, his political star was at a very high point in the sky. Uh, and if you if you wait, you miss that opportunity. It's not a, it's not a guarantee that you're going to win, but the, the environment is right. Seemingly, that's where where Governor DeSantis is at this point, and he will have to make a decision if he is if he is ready and willing uh, to go up against a former president uh, who is a skilled and ruthless campaigner uh, and who is very good at at exposing, finding and exposing the vulnerabilities of his opponents. So that's where we are right now. <laughs> DeSanctimonious is his nickname for for Governor DeSantis. Real fast, uh, Trump has been uh, teasing what he calls a big announcement next uh, for next Tuesday he says it's still he's still going to do this thing is this where he says i'm in for 2024 i would never i would never want to predict uh, what donald trump is going to say at any given moment uh, <laughs> he loves to tease people he loves to draw attention um, but whether he'll go through with it next week i think we'll just have to wait and see you know wise words as always, Dan Baltz. Dan Baltz, Washington Post chief correspondent. As always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Jonathan. Same to you. All right. Uh, we're going to keep this conversation going uh, with our Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my Washington Post columnist colleagues, Charles Lane and Jennifer Rubin. Chuck, Jennifer, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. So I, I'm vacillating between who to start with. Um, I'm going to start with you, Jennifer, because it was here on First Look a weeks ago when we were talking about the red wave. And you said, I don't know about that. It could be, depends on what part of the country you're in. It could be a red wave over here. It could be a blue wave over there. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see. How does it feel to be kind of right? It's unique, right? We all get them right, we all get them wrong. Um, listen, um, the notion that frankly any of us could predict, I think is one that journalists would be do, would be uh, well to ignore. I think that the emphasis on polling and on reading the tea leaves is probably uh, too great in our profession. But what mm -hmm. I did see, and the reason why I felt that the hype may have been overplayed for Republicans was twofold. Um, I talked to a great number of Democrats in swing districts, by the way, all of whom won um, in, on, uh, on Tuesday. And they said two things to me. One was that abortion made a huge difference. 
I think when the press thinks of the voter, the average voter, they sometimes forget that most voters are women. And the intensity on that side, the anger, um, even among Republicans, independence um, was tremendous. And I don't think the press fully grappled with that. Dan said that Republicans and Democrats basically split independent votes. Independent women went overwhelmingly for Democrats. And that, I think, is the abortion issue. We saw that emerge in Kansas over the summer. So I think that was one issue. Um, and I think the other issue out there was what Dan talked about, and that was candidate quality, which kind of merges into the Trump problem, um, that he's too weird, his people are too crazy. And as we sit here today, there is not a single election <clears throat> denier who will be in a governor's um, uh, governorship um, in a swing state beginning in 2023. That's huge. And I think that's an indication that the public is very uneasy with this um, swing to crazy land um, and that they really do not want these sort of characters. Hey, Chuck, I would love to get your thoughts, but specifically, wasn't the economy supposed to be um, the electoral downfall of Democrats? It sure was. In fact, it makes you wonder if inflation weren't quite as bad as it is right now, how well even better the Democrats uh, might have done. Because I think undeniably inflation was the strongest issue the Republicans had. And um, that was a drag on the Democrats all across the country. Um, but I think, you know, we we have learned from this election that there's tremendous variety of experience in voters from state to state. To Jennifer's point about abortion, you know, Michigan had an important referendum on that issue on the ballot. That clearly affected the fact that it went blue up and down the ballot. Uh, by contrast, Florida had settled that issue through legislation with this 15-week bill that DeSantis had supported. So it really wasn't as salient in Florida. Uh, candidate quality, it's very interesting. I agree that Mehmet Oz was not a great candidate in Pennsylvania. But would he have done better if an even worse candidate, Doug Mastriano, had not been uh, heading the statewide ticket for Republicans uh, for governor? So we could go on and on about this, but I think um, what was wrong with the pundits, myself included, was we tended to look at a lot of national data and not really have either the time or the inclination to drill down on how specific things were playing out in particular states. Incidentally, there was a red wave in New York. Uh, if you like, um, where New York uh, Republicans won a lot of congressional seats and Lee Zeldin ran real strong, but that wasn't a red wave nationally. Right. Such a red wave in New York that the chair of the DCCC, Sean Patrick Maloney, Congressman Maloney, whose job it was to help Democrats keep the majority, lost his seat, uh, lost his bid for re-election. Jennifer, I want to talk about a column you wrote, but first I want to play a clip of President Biden's reaction to the midterms. We'll talk about it on the other side. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. And I know you were somewhat miffed by my, uh, my uh, obsessive optimism, but uh, I felt good during the whole process. I thought we were going to do fine. And so, Jennifer, in your column after the election, you called President Biden, and I quote, and I agree with, quote, perhaps the most underrated politician in decades. Why is that? And how has this given him a new lease on life? How will that manifest itself? 
I think he um, keeps his eye on the ball probably better than any modern president that I can think of. He doesn't get distracted by Twitter. He doesn't get distracted by the political pundits. Um, he has a very good sense of where the center is, um, where working class whites, where African Americans are, where women in the suburbs are. Those are very key constituencies, and they are, in some sense, really the defining factor in our elections now. He has always had that sense, and we saw it in the primary, where very few journalists would have picked him to win the nomination. He is not a great speaker. He is not very articulate. He has all these verbal, you know, ticks and twists mm -hmm. um, that um, aren't great. He's not a great speech giver. But he does know something about Americans. And that incessant optimism, by the way, Republicans tend um, to appreciate when it's on their side, when you have Ronald Reagan uh, morning in America. Democrats um, should appreciate it more. They understood the power of a Barack Obama uh, hope and change. Listen, Joe Biden is no Barack Obama, but he does have a sense that things are changing, things are getting better. And I will say, I think the Republicans made a big mistake in opposing all of the measures that he put out there to try to tamp down, not on inflation per se, but on sort of uh, kitchen book, uh, kitchen table issues and uh, expenses that uh, families cause. And the Republicans really didn't have a viable alternative. When they did put something out, it was really wacky. It was talking about so cutting social security and all sorts of scary things. So I think Biden remains this figure that somehow um, has his finger on the pulse of a part of America called the silent majority, we call it the quiet um, majority, that uh, a lot of pundits, a lot of people on the coasts um, don't. And he's very successful in tapping into that both in tone and in substance. You know, one of the key things he, President Biden said in that 60 Minutes interview that he did uh, now seemingly way back when was, uh, watch me. And if you just sit and watch President Biden, you know, he ends up being more right than wrong when it comes to the politics of uh, what's, uh, what the politics of what he's dealing with. Um, Chuck, <laughs> switching gears just a little bit. Who had a better night Tuesday, um, President Biden or Governor DeSantis? Well, they both had pretty good nights uh, and they both beat expectations. Um, but I'm gonna answer your question by saying, Governor Jared Polis of Colorado, um, because in all the um, discussion of what a huge margin DeSantis ran up, and it was, I think it was 19 or 20 points, Jared Polis had almost the same kind of victory in Colorado. Uh, and he polled Michael Bennett along with him, I think, the senatorial candidate for the Democrats. And there's gonna be, there should be anyway, a lot more focus on the success he's had, both in policy terms and in political terms, governing what used to be a red state, then became a purple state, and under Jared Polis has become kind of a blue state. He's done in Colorado something similar to what DeSantis has done in Florida, which is to establish dominance for his party. And as you, I think this event, this election certainly strengthens the case for Joe Biden if he wants to run again in 2024. But as the party looks toward the future uh, for uh, leadership, I think Polis has come out of this extremely well positioned. Uh, let me ask that question now a different way, Chuck, uh, real quickly, because I do want to get to Jennifer on this whole should Biden run again question. Who had a better night? 
Donald Trump or Governor DeSantis? Oh, totally Governor DeSantis. Uh, but I think the again, I'm going to skip your question and say the Republican Party had a, had the worst night because now they're arguing amongst themselves. Uh, everybody thought that this was going to be a bad night for Democrats, which inevitably would have led to internal wrangling and recriminations and so forth. And instead, all of that is on the other side. Republicans are at each other's throats. Uh, Trump is going wild against DeSantis and so on. I think DeSantis has kept his cool under the onslaught of these insults over the last few days. And so I guess in that respect, you could say he's had the better night. I think he holds the higher cards right now than Trump. And nevertheless, I think we've seen this movie before. Somehow Trump always manages to maintain his grip on the party, even after people denounce him. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember the NBC tape that supposedly disqualified him and so on. So uh, I color me skeptical about the breakup between the Republicans and, and Trump. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, so um, back to President Biden, and we've seen poll after poll after poll leading up to the midterms. An overwhelming majority of Democrats saying they don't want Joe Biden to run for re-election. They want someone else. I mean, because that's what Democrats do. They're not satisfied with the person who actually has a job. So my question is, do the results from the midterm elections quell that um, sentiment within the Democratic Party that President Biden should not run for re-election? Well, I'll answer by saying Chuck stole a third of my piece for Sunday because not only Jared Polis, but Gretchen uh, Whitmer, also a star, also pulled her party um, into the blue. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Josh Shapiro, who also had a very big night. As oh, a yeah. rising star. I, think what happened, um, I think what happened um, last night is that the chances that uh, Joe Biden ran certainly increased. He has every reason now to think that the party likes me. I get the public. The pundits are wrong. I can do this job. I'm not sure it entirely, though, extinguishes the sense among Democrats that they love dear Joe Biden, but could they get somebody else? Is there someone else out there? And now they have a bunch of these stars out there, including Jared uh, Polis, including uh, Gretchen Whitmer. And so I think um, Democrats will be torn. In the end, if Joe Biden runs, the party will rally around him. I see no uh, indication that anyone is going to try to primary him. Uh, Democrats know that that's a disaster, as it was in 1980. Um, so I think he will run. And I think everyone will be watching these rising stars and say, well, we'll come back in 2028. The good news is those three governors or one governor-elect that I pointed out are all in their 40s and 50s. Mm. Those are probably infants um, in the new political age game. So they're going to have dozens and dozens of opportunities for higher office. Uh, Chuck, last question to you in the time that we have left. Um, inflation, year over year in October, stood at 7.7%. .7 high, but still much better than forecasters had expected. The stock market went through the roof, 1,200 points, if I remember correctly, with inflation appearing to cool. What does that mean for fears of recession? Uh, it mutes them because it suggests that, in fact, the Federal Reserve is pulling off or has a chance to pull off this extremely difficult quote unquote, soft landing for the economy, that is to bring inflation down without having to you know, grind the growth machine to a halt and throw a lot of people out of work. 
it's really early. <laughs> we just finished messing up our predictions for the uh, political situation. <laughs> so I'm not going to make any for the economy. But I would I would add a political note to this. If, in fact, inflation is on the way down, that's a huge game changer for American politics because inflation is a presidency killer. And it was the biggest threat to the Democrats this fall. You know, if a year from now, Joe Biden can say, look, inflation is only 5% and it was 8% last year, that's a, a terrific boost for him. But there's so much uncertainty about that. And uh, I suppose the only thing worse than taking your cues about the political future from journalists is to take them from the people who trade stocks. Uh, so oh, I'm yeah. not going to do that either. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, we, we actually have a little bit of time. We'd love to get your thoughts on this. Well, I think the market went nuts because they keep believing, talking themselves into the notion that as soon as they get a good number, that um, Jerome Powell is going to take his foot off the brake. They're wrong about that. Um, he shows no indication that he's going to give up on uh, interest rate hikes um, until he really has slayed the giant. I do entirely agree with Chuck. If they pull this off and if we avoid a recession or it's relatively mild, um, Biden and the Democrats will be looked at and Jerome Powell, frankly, as some kind of economic geniuses. And listen, let's be honest. America's economy is stronger than any other in the world. That may not be solace to people who are filling up their tank, but if you're making economic bets and economic investments, the American economy really remains the most robust in the world. And uh, if Donald Trump uh, and the Republicans um, decide that they're gonna attack him on all kinds of screwy stuff, um, he's still gonna come back and say, I pulled off an economic miracle. Um, and that will be a tremendous boost for Democrats in 2024. Um, real quickly, Chuck, we've got about 90 seconds left, but you said something, our, our offices are next to each other. So we chit chatted um, before the show today. And you said, you put our midterm elections into a global perspective. Um, that if you take our midterms, I think you mentioned the Russian withdrawal from Kherson. Uh, I think you also mentioned the Brazil elections. What does that all? What do all of those things tell you? You put them all together, and it's kind of bad news for uh, anti-democratic forces around the world. I mean, to the extent it's a defeat for Donald Trump, who I consider anti-democratic, the midterm election fits into that. But the bigger picture is that they're all kind of stabilizing events. They are all events that show a lot of the turbulence and uh, worry that we were having, like maybe these midterms in the U.S. would turn violent. Bolsonaro would refuse to cede power. Russia would use nuclear weapons before it gives up Kherson. Those didn't materialize. So, you know, going into the winter, there's a sort of stabilizing trend globally. And I think this midterm might be construed as part of that. And with that, we are done. Charles Lane, Jennifer Rubin, thank you both very much as always for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.